This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the -the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. Well, I got the second shot. It hit me. I don't know about you, but it hit me pretty hard. I was not expecting that. Yeah, I was out of commission for, I guess, two days. One completely out of commission. I did not expect that. Some anecdotal data for you. I was on the Pfizer. Not medical advice, but... I'll give you some life advice is I would drink a lot of water. I think I got severely dehydrated and I would take it easy on your second shot. Now, I've been seeing Canada is among like one of the leading countries in the world right now. It's pretty incredible. Again, I'm here in Europe, in Germany, and they're doing pretty good. But Canada, they are uh, they are seen as leaders from these parts so that's pretty cool. So Canada is, you know, after a slow start, I mean, I was thinking to myself, there have been so many reversals in this virus. First, China does terrible. Then they were doing phenomenal. Now with their vaccines starting to look kind of shaky and low vaccination rates in China and Hong Kong, now they're starting to look weaker again. So it's quite the roller coaster. Remember, England was doing phenomenal. Now this Delta variant is taking over. And so it's a crazy start of decade. Let's just put it that way. If we look at the economy, you know, as you may know, if you listen to this program, you know, so I listen to a lot of financial podcasts. And what's interesting when you amalgamate and aggregate all of that data that I put through these years I'm starting to hear a marked shift in tone among people who are becoming more confident in their deflationist view. And this is borne out somewhat by the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond, which is at 1.485%, which is 0.005% higher, but basically the same. So it has definitely come back from that 1.75% range. I think it. someone was saying it hit as high as 1.8% in that rally. So you are hearing a greater chorus that the reflationist narrative is starting to run out of steam a little bit. And, you know, as you might know as well, if you listen to this podcast, I follow the crypto markets ever so closely. And it really reminds me of 2011 in, in terms of the narrative. And every it's almost like if you run out of fundamentals, you know, if you're in the precious metals or in crypto, you can always have the inflation narrative. And that always concerns me. I mean, I'm still in those assets big time because I just think they're so cool, exciting. You know what they remind me of? They remind me of 
Marvel Comics in the 1960s. They remind me of Topps trading cards from the 1980s or the 70s, you know, 1970s hockey cards. They're so cool and, and so and they're so collectible. So, you know, inflation or not, I'm extraordinarily bullish on those assets because I just think they're so cool. And you know what? And they're like, as I've mentioned previously, they're like little video financial video games practically that are fairly profitable for the most part, not financial advice to do your own diligence and research on that front. So I looked at the metal prices because some people have said a lot of this inflation trade has come off. Gold is down. I would not say it's out. I mean, gold is at $1,771 per ounce. So that is lower than where we were. You know, I saw a headline, worst gold price heading for its worst month in four years. So again, I you know, copper's at $4.28 per pound, $4.28 per pound. I don't consider that out. Like some people say copper has come way down. I would still call this elevated. So, you know, I, I am actually more in the deflationist camp. Nevertheless, I don't see prices as like unwinding here when we look at the commodities. So it maybe the real takeaway here is is the power of narratives. You know, like that's why I love the fact that we look at these numbers because the numbers don't lie. The numbers are the numbers. The price, it's the price. So so coming up this episode, we have Anthony Malowski from Nickel 28, and uh, we have my interview with him from the Global Mining Symposium, which was a little over a month ago. And I was filling in for Alicia Hyatt, editor of the Canadian Mining Journal. And, you know, if you are interested in a lot of the issues I bring up, you know, just supply chains, why Canada can't seem to do more, this, this relationship between government and the private sector, particularly in regards to these metals, I think are quite complicated issues. Uh, we go into it deep, and Anthony Malowski is very well read. He's, he's on this issue. He's the CEO of a nickel company, and he's written several articles for the Northern Miner. Yeah, and what Malowski basically says is that it looks like China has a stronghold on the battery metals supply chain for years to come. And they want to sell us the cars. They don't want to just sell us the batteries. They don't want to sell us the materials. They want to sell us the cars. They want Detroit in China. So a very interesting topical discussion, which I think just hits on so many of the big issues of our time. So with that... If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a story by our new reporter. New, not-so-new reporter, Henry Lazenby. And he's talking about Atlantic Canada's gold rush, which is gathering steam and more consolidation is expected. So let's take a little closer look at what is going on in Atlantic 
Canada. Atlantic Canada focused gold juniors are driving an exploration boom in provinces not previously noted for their gold production. The increasing sentiment has one analyst calling for caution as the market froths up. Quote, beware the arm wavers as momentum sweeps the provinces. End quote. Joe Mezidmar, editor and analyst at Exploration Insights, says in an interview, and he continues, quote, many of the juniors that had made discoveries recently are trading at very high market caps while they still have no resource statements underpinning anything. That's where we're at right now. Newfoundland landholders are suddenly getting a premium for just having a ground near prospective areas. Anyone who's got ground has the ability to raise capital due to their location. And in addition, Eric Sprott and the retail market are very keen on the area. End quote. Very interesting. Mazudmar says the region could play host to more consolidation. Quote, companies like Newfound Gold with a market cap of $1.77 billion would probably look to consolidate. So that might be a good use of paper. End quote. For comparison, it is interesting that Great Bear Resources is about three years in from discovering Dixie and choosing to continue drilling before releasing a mineral resource estimate, and it continues to see it attract a market capitalization of $830 million. So yeah, I mean, these are pretty elevated market caps, aren't they? Quote, so the question becomes, how do you add value in this market? Do companies continue drilling for grade or move the projects further along the Lassonde curve. That is important to watch, says Mazadmar. And he continues, the current valuation suggests that you can get significant value at this stage in the exploration development production cycle by just drilling and returning high-grade results. Well, an unlikely story, isn't it? And this is exactly what Henry goes on to say. Perceptions have changed dramatically over the past few years over the likelihood for significant gold deposits to occur along the North American East Coast. For the most part, there were small pockets of gold mineralization to be found, just not on any significant scale. Currently, there are about 30 exploration companies active in Atlantic Canada alone. The discovery and sale of substantial high-grade gold deposits along the Appalachian trend in recent years has given the fortunes of many junior explorers a shot in the arm. And we'll just touch on a couple of more things here. Recent high-grade discoveries by Newfound Gold and Sockman Minerals in Newfoundland and Aston Bay Holdings in Virginia have renewed investor interest and exploration activities in the region. In recent years, the Eastern Seaboard saw several notable mergers and acquisitions activity with Oceana Gold's $650 million acquisition in 2015 of Remarco Minerals to gain control of the 4 million ounce plus hail mine in South Carolina, kicking off the action. More recently, St. Barbara's Atlantic Gold acquisition for $550 million in cash for control of the low-cost Moose River Consolidated Open Pit Operation in Nova Scotia, Canada, confirmed the region was indeed host to large economic deposits. So, I am just skimming the surface of this extended article here. So take a look. If gold and Atlantic Canada are things that interest you, you have a bonanza of an article here.
You can find it on northernminer.com. And moving on, B2Gold launches arbitration against Mali over the Menangkodo exploration permit. So just a couple of government stories I want to hit. It's a get early signs from regions about what's going on from how they're interacting with the local mining companies. B2Gold has announced that its Malian subsidiary Menangkodo SARL has begun international arbitration proceedings against the Republic of Mali. The Menangkodo Exploration Permit, which forms a part of the Anaconda area, is located 20 kilometers north of the company's Fakola Mine license area. The action argues that the Republic of Mali breached its obligations to Menangkodo under the Convention and under the 2012 Mining Code. The arbitration will be conducted by the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes in Paris, B2 Gold said in a press release. So interesting development there with B2 Gold and Mali, kind of a difficult part of the world in some respects. I think it really depends where you are in some of these countries, but West Africa is, uh, there's a lot going on in that region. Let's just put it that way. Continuing on, U.S. Justice Department backs land swap for Rio Tinto's Arizona copper mine. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. So what is going on here? Again, Rio Tinto, back in the news. The U.S. government said today it backs a 2,400-acre land exchange that would allow Rio Tinto to move forward with its majority-owned resolution copper project in Arizona, despite opposition by Native American groups and environmentalists. So just two weeks ago, we had a story in, was it Serbia? It was in Eastern Europe where Rio Tinto was fighting local Aboriginal groups there. And now in the U.S., I mean, this is just so fresh off the last scandal. And it was a scandal because the CEO was forced to resign. And when you see, like, I mean, so soon, now we this is the second story that we've seen. Maybe there are more, but there are minimum two stories going against Aboriginal groups and it really makes you wonder, like like I was saying in an earlier episode, if I was the CEO of Rio Tinto, I would be asking my people and I would say, uh, people, why am I seeing Rio Tinto against Aboriginal groups in the newspaper? Hey, why am I seeing this? And please make it stop now. But they don't seem to be concerned, which always brings you back to this board. It's always like this is the real culprit here is perhaps the board because apparently Jean-Sébastien Jacques leaving has not really changed the vibe too much here. Admittedly, this is not blowing up sites, but we're sort of getting a little bit more of the same to a lesser degree. Let's take a closer look. In 2014, President Obama signed a Pentagon funding bill that approved Rio Tinto's proposal to exchange land for another parcel nearby, with the caveat that it could not occur until an environmental report on the mine was published. The Trump administration published that report on January 15th, clearing the way for an exchange within 60 days. So it sounds like within the dying days of the Trump administration. The Biden administration had paused the land exchange in March, effectively reversing the former president's final approval. The U.S. Department of Agriculture said then that more time was needed to, quote, fully understand concerns, having received, quote, significant input 
end quote, regarding the transfer of Oak Flat since the documents were released in January. The decision was made on the heels of a global outcry sparked by Rio Tinto after it destroyed ancient Aboriginal rock shelters in Australia. The incident cost several top executives their posts. The U.S. Justice Department has now filed legal briefs to oppose claims by Apache and conservationist groups arguing the exchange violates treaties and religious freedom laws, according to Arizona-based the Payson Roundup news site. The filing, the report says, suggests the Biden administration will follow through on the land exchange. Now, there is the other side to this where if you were an activist and you want to hit Rio Tinto where it hurts to stop development, it would seem your first go-to would be the Aboriginal cultural heritage question where they, one would think they are weakest. That is the softest uh, point from which to attack them. So where the truth lies remains unclear. But it looks like the government, the U.S. government, is taking Rio Tinto's side on this one, which is interesting. Continuing on, together with its 45% partner BHP, who has claimed they want nothing to do with Aboriginal cultural sites, they had a very big announcement shortly after Rio Tinto's scandal. So along with BHP, they have spent more than $2 billion on Resolution Copper to date, including reclamation of the magma copper mine site and sinking a second shaft to mining depth. The miners describe Resolution as one of the world's largest undeveloped copper deposits and estimate it could produce over 20 million tons of copper over 40 years. So the plot thickens. What else do we have? We have a report that outlines what Canada must do to secure the supply of critical minerals. It's by Valentina Ruiz Leotode. And the Standing Committee on Natural Resources has presented a report before Canada's House of Commons that stresses the importance of securing a supply of critical minerals, particularly in the face of China's dominance. Based on the information and feedback received from industry, First Nations, research institutions, market analysts, and other experts, the committee said it is time for the Canadian government to step up its game, leverage the Canadian mining industry's high environmental, social, and government standards, and involvement of Indigenous communities, and take concrete steps to reduce the country's dependence on foreign markets while positioning itself in global markets. You know, there is a consensus that's emerging here. I mean, that sounds like this show. Uh, so if the committee reports are saying the same thing as this show... I think we're all starting to get the memo here. And we also have a little bit on electric batteries here, and I'll move on. The report points out that Canada has everything it needs to work towards such a goal, as it produces 60 minerals, including some critical minerals, and it is the only nation in the Western Hemisphere that has copper, cobalt, rare earth elements, graphite, lithium, manganese, and nickel deposits, which are all needed to produce advanced batteries for electric vehicles, the topic of our conversation here with Anthony Malowski. So read more about it. This is, again, a detailed article. I am skimming the surface here to give you a nice survey of what is going on out there. Also, there's a study that shows small modular nuclear reactors could be a cost-effective option for remote mines. Again, this is by Alicia Hyatt, and we discussed this in an earlier episode, and that is exactly what people are talking about now. Use these SMRs, these small modular reactors, his name was John Gorman from the Canadian Nuclear Association, was telling me, you can put these things on the back of a truck. You know, so they're pretty cool, these SMRs, and they're supposed to be quite safe. And 
Another headline, renewables are winning the cost war against fossil fuels. This is a report by the IREA, the International Renewable Energy Agency. And it sounds like renewables are starting to get as cheap or cheaper than fossil fuels. Uh, It says here they're significantly undercutting them. So that is interesting. Read that on the northernminer.com. And finally, tin prices are soaring on rising demand. Now, this is looking back at the first half of 2021. So this is a story we've largely seen already. This is by Henry Lazenby, but he outlines the whole issue in the first half, the the story of tin's remarkable rise in the first half of this year, which again plays into our whole reflationist, deflationist narrative. So those are your news stories. Now let's actually take a look at these metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on June 29th, to set the stage for us, the U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 1.485%. That is 0.005% higher than last week. So within that context, gold is trading at $1,771.09 per ounce. That is $8 lower than last week. And yeah, if we go back to, you know, five weeks ago, we were at 1913 So gold has come down in the last month. I'm not, you know, stopping the presses over that, but it is significant. Silver is at $25.97 per ounce. That is $0.10 cents higher than last week. Platinum is also higher at $1,078.47. That is $12 higher than last week. And palladium is also higher at $2,669.75 per ounce. That is $64 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.10 higher at $4.28 per pound. Aluminum is $0.03 higher at $1.11 per pound. Lead is $0.04 higher at $1.01 per pound. Nickel is $0.58 higher at $8.44 per pound. And that is the highest it's been in a few months. So... Interesting, interesting. Tin is at $14.72 per pound. That is $0.34 higher than last week. Still underneath its local high from two months ago at $15.22. But staying elevated, cobalt is at $20.64 per pound. That is $0.45 higher than last week. And zinc is unchanged at $1.30 per pound. So what do we see? I see everything is actually a little higher except for gold. And basically nothing is coming unwound yet. Have things stopped going up? Is there a shift in momentum? Perhaps. Perhaps there is not the you know, speed, but we've been seeing that for the last few weeks here. So, you know, I don't think we can call this anything other than a consolidation until these prices come down further. 
Otherwise, there's no reason to believe yet that the reflation trade is off. These are pretty elevated prices, and we're not seeing them coming unwound. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have my discussion with Mr. Anthony Malowski, chairman of Nickel 28 Capital at the Global Mining Symposium on May 19th, 2021. And Anthony has spent his career in various aspects of the mining industry, including as company director, advisor, founder, and investor. In particular, he has been active in commodities related to decarbonization and energy transition, including nickel, cobalt, copper, and carbon credits. So we had a very interesting discussion on commodities, China, electric vehicle batteries, and the whole supply chain. It was a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it, and we will see you on the other side. Excited to talk to Anthony Malowski, who has written several articles for the Northern Miner, many of which I've read on the podcast, and he is chairman of Nickel 28, and a long-standing investor in the mining sector. And so he is very qualified to discuss this topic. And he's written about several different commodities. You know, a lot of some of the favorites of many of the investors that read our newspaper, such as uranium, cobalt, and now nickel, and some, some of the more, you might think of as boring metals traditionally, but now they're pretty exciting. So Anthony, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So. I was listening to Mark Jarvis's presentation there, and something really struck me about how he was comparing the West and China and how they, in China, they don't really worry so much about the IRR so much. And I guess my kind of big question for you is, in the West, are we too focused on the investment side of things? And we're not thinking, as as Mark Jarvis put it, strategically enough? Are we sort of, are we falling behind by just, in a sense, over-obsessing on money? It's, it's kind of a complex question. So, I mean, I think you have to talk about like communist capitalism. So, you know, when China makes an investment, it's making an investment on behalf of its citizen with taxpayer dollars, effectively. And when we're talking about, say, Canada and the U.S., um, corporations are investing the money on behalf of their shareholders who are seeking the highest IRR return for the capital of these public companies or private equity funds. And so I think when you're asking a question, what you're really asking is, should the Canadian government, should the American government, should the Australian government be investing in these, in these projects to secure the supply chain? Because as Mark indicated, China is years ahead of the West in, in doing this. And uh, you know the answer is, if the free market isn't going to fund these, then the only way these projects are getting funded is one, with a higher commodity price, or two, with subsidies from governments. So where does that leave us? Because in a sense, we have discussion, conference after conference, where, yeah, the Chinese are way ahead of us. And and in a, in a sense, it never seems to lead anything. So from your perspective, I mean, you're the head of a Nickel 28 a mining company, uh, you're very well uh, learned on the subject and engaged. It's your daily job. What needs to happen in, in your view to yeah, like, can you know, connect the dots for us? Yeah, I mean, like, so it's, it's a great question and it's an important one. I think the basic answer is 
uh, it has to become important to the governments, and it simply isn't. I mean, you can imagine everything that they're dealing with, COVID and, you know, the printing of money and all these other issues. I just don't think it's really on anyone's agenda. And so I, I don't really foresee how the gap gets closed. And, you know, what China is doing is they're really taking and bringing Detroit, as it were, to, to China. You know, they don't want to sell you a battery. They don't want to sell you MHP. They want to sell you a car. And this is a strategy on behalf of the Chinese government to bring this industry to China. And at this moment in time, it's it's pretty hard to see how they don't have a stronghold on the supply chain for years to come. Uh, you know, there are a couple projects in Canada like Dumont and and Turnagain there that potentially need over a billion dollars each to come into production in years of time. And the Chinese are around the world buying the assets today. So I, I just don't know. Um, if we can close the gap, it's going to be more a situation of whether or not we can at least kind of get on the board, as it were, with some new production. Interesting. So from your perspective, then, how is Canada doing? Canada has a great legal framework. I mean, one of the great things about Canada is there is a great framework for buying and selling properties, for investing in properties, for streams and royalties, a framework that, that almost doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Sure. Australia also has a great framework, but I think you have the rule of law of Canada and you have a great backdrop and you have great deposits. But you know, my experience is that that um, on the current, based on the current political climate, it's just not going to be the case that Chinese companies are going to invest in Canada anytime soon in the resource space. You know, it could be years. And instead they've gone to Africa, they've gone to PNG, Indonesia in particular, and, and they're heading down a, a little bit of a different path. And so you know, Canada, on the one hand, has done a great job in creating an environment where all sorts of companies and commodities have a chance. But the key difference is the cost of capital and the cost of capital associated with uh, China for projects that are invested in by the Chinese government effectively or the SOEs is simply lower. And so it's, it's a basic decision that has to be made at the government level in Canada or the U.S. or, you know, wherever in the West. Do we want to extend uh, our taxpayer money to, to build these mines. And I think to date, the answer is no. And frankly, I don't see it happening anytime soon. There's so many other problems inside of our societies that uh, people don't realize how critical this is to an electric future. And uh, it's probably pretty untenable to start building multi-billion dollar mines in, in, in Sudbury, I would think. So yeah, I, I would imagine that that um, nothing is going to change anytime soon inside of, of Canada and the US, notwithstanding whatever the rhetoric is. It does seem that way, doesn't it? I mean, I hosted a panel on low-grade nickel deposits in Sudbury, and believe it or not, it was a fascinating chat. I, I was quite proud that we all seemed to make it pretty interesting. And that is my impression, is that these things won't be developed, or that there's a maybe, you know, my conclusion was that maybe sometime if the investors show up and the price of nickel goes high enough and we can convince the investors, and what year is that going to be, right? So, like, it just, it just gets us. There's no priority. It just seems to me like if there's a, economic problems in Canada, why aren't we building the multi-billion-dollar uh, nickel mine in, in Dumont in Ontario? Uh, I, I don't understand. Like, shouldn't that help our money printing problem? Yeah, look, it's a political question, right? It's a question. Is it maybe. okay? Yeah, so, well, I, mean, I, I don't know. I, I, like, if I was the government, I think the government's question is. Should we be building a mine or should we be building, you know, installed capacity for vaccines? I mean, those are probably the questions that they're right. grappling with. 
And I just, I, I think um, it's a moot point. You know, China has already won. You know, China embarked maybe even seven to 10 years ago on the path of electrifying their grid. And, you know, what I think is really interesting that, that no one talks about is, you know, China is a global leader in environmental policy right now. Like, like let that sink in for a second. Not America, not Europe, not Canada. It's China. And, and I say that because the Chinese government has a constituency that's the people that live there. And maybe it's not a democracy like you think about it, but ultimately they are beholden to that constituency. And they've said that there is enough pollution in the air, enough pollution in the food. And the only way to clean this up is to change the way that automobiles and, and similar vehicles are powered. And, and so they've gone ahead and they've started to do that. And they're years ahead of us. I'm always blown away by how much further ahead. And you know, as part of that strategy, they went out and they bought the cobalt in the Congo. They bought copper deposits around the world. They bought lithium deposits around the world. And um, we're not going to catch up in nickel. We might catch up in lithium just because of the position and the geopolitics of lithium. But in nickel in particular, the problem is that if you look at the last cycle and you look at HPAL, you know, one of the great destroyers of value, maybe the single largest destroyer of value in the mining sector was HPAL. You know, whether it was Goro, you know, between two to six billion dollars over budget, um, and Badavi, multiple billions over budget, you know, investors really lost money. So in addition to whatever the cost of capital is today, in the market amongst fund managers, you just have a memory of when we think tens of billions of dollars of you know destruction of capital with HPAL. So I just I don't see that it's gonna happen, frankly. And if you're a Ford or a Tesla, you probably have to plan accordingly and and um, go out yourself and and maybe try and do offtake agreements and make other investments to secure your nickel. Or when it comes, you know, it's gonna be problematic. The nickel market today is like 2.7 million tons, give or take with 65% of that being steel, right? The driver of nickel today is steel. And the battery market is about 200 to 300,000 tons of that, of that overall amount, so roughly 10%. But you know, there's 40 kilograms of nickel roughly in today's battery in each car. So when you get to 400,000 tons of demand from batteries a year, the market is gonna be really tight. I mean, uh, you know, amazingly tight. And that's gonna push push nickel higher and and um maybe that's a moment where some of these canadian projects are able to raise money you know real money yeah so yeah so we're back to square one in a sense for for, for me from my perspective because uh, I, I i was asking these ceos what do you need from the government and what was super interesting about it was that they didn't seem like they wanted government money almost as if that would be a problem and, and might complicate things and they might be right so it's it's just interesting because, yeah, it it gets you just makes you wonder uh, how we're ever going to develop these projects. Like, so, so like in Canada today, there are basically two projects. Well, there's there's of course Boise's Bay with its greenfield expansion or brownfield expansion, but that's something different. Like there's Dumont, which is owned by Waterton, and they're running a sales process. At least that's what the market thinks, uh, or we've heard in the market. And then um, there's Turnigan. I mean, those are the two projects, and Dumont is quite a bit ahead of Turnigan. It's permitted. They're both sulfides, uh, and so you know, they don't have some of those HPAL issues, but that's it. Everything else is still years behind and you know, not clear that they'll hit this cycle. And so you've got to start looking at Australia, some of the low-grade stuff in Australia that's more advanced, or you've got to look at places like 
Indonesia, which is what the Chinese have done. Uh, you know, they've gone to Indonesia and are building huge capacity in Indonesia. Okay, so now regarding what you're saying, which was, I think, would surprise a lot of people, as you're sort of alluding to about uh, China's environmental, uh, in a sense, record, you, you would claim that it's actually superior to the West. Do, do I have that right? And and what is that? Because, I mean, well, I, that, I, I mean, think the popular understanding point, is that yeah. they're not, but tell, tell me more. Well, I would just say that on this point, they are taking the global lead. They are, they are literally out there developing the resource capacity, but not just that really, even the installed industrial capacity to build batteries and cars in a way that no one else is doing. It's being subsidized by the government. And, and you know, we're just sitting here talking about basically NMC and NCA batteries, you know, nickel, manganese, cobalt, nickel, cobalt, aluminum batteries. But by the way, LFP, another technology is being further refined in China, hydrogen, so all of these technologies have the aim of keeping the Chinese population happy by reducing pollution. And while you know Biden is talking about infrastructure and the Green New Deal, it's it's years and years behind what uh, has been transpiring in China. And so they, in my view, have taken a global role as a leader in policy by putting money behind this notion that they need to uh, have an electrified vehicle uh, fleet. But you know, it's it's it is complicated. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So, please do. Yeah. So, so what happened with the glass nickel cycle was nickel ran really hard, and it, and it was primarily uh, a market controlled by HPAL and, and ferro production, right? And then the Chinese started buying these old, you know, processes, and what they did was these old furnaces, and what they did was they were able to create nickel pig iron, and that added, you know, today was become over seven hundred thousand metric tons. Of nickel pig iron, nickel supply into the supply chain, effectively crashing the price of nickel for a decade. And what we started to see was nickel run. We saw a bunch of financings kind of like, you know, within the last year. And then Tianxin, who was responsible in the last cycle for this nickel pig iron revolution, came out and said, well, by the way, we're going to convert nickel pig iron to nickel mat. And that just took the edge off nickel, but it was a bit of a you know, a false narrative because one, Valley has been doing this for a long time. That, that's not new technology. But in order for it to work, you have to have a nickel price because it's basically energy. So you've got, you've got nickel pig iron and now you have to add energy and, and sulfur to create nickel mat. And now that you've got nickel mat, you have to dissolve that again to make a chemical and put it into batteries. And that's highly energy intensive. And so while that, that uh, technology exists, it has existed, let's be clear, for a long time. Uh, the price of nickel doesn't warrant actually that conversion. And that's really what's held up the market over the last six to 12 months is this idea that Tianxin has come up with a more you know, inexpensive of way of doing that. The other problem with this is you know, carbon, carbon footprints have become you know, in vogue as ESG investing and just sort of general awareness of our environment increases. You know, what you have with this process that the Chinese are, are touting that they've um, refined enough to make competitive is a much more carbon intensive process. So an HPAL nickel unit has around 16 tons of carbon per unit of nickel. When you go into that nickel pig iron arena, that goes up to like 45 to 85. And then you add in the additional energy to convert it to nickel mat. And you're talking about a massive, like maybe tenfold increase in carbon footprint. And so one of the interesting or complex things is 
let's pretend China wins. They've built all the infrastructure. Is the world prepared to buy these electric vehicles on pretty, you know, pretty dirty carbon footprint uh, nickel production? And so that is a nuance which the market hasn't really even contemplated yet. Is this Indonesian conversion from nickel pig iron to nickel mat is extremely carbon intensive and in a way kind of counterintuitive to the idea that you're going to go sell electric vehicles and, and not have a carbon footprint. I see. So if, from your perspective, then, is China winning the contest to create electric vehicle batteries and electric vehicles, in your view, is it just based, I guess, the bat from the perspective of the batteries? Well, if this was like a, a baseball World Series, we had seven... <laughs> seven games to win the World Series. You know, they've already won the first three games. And, and, you know, we better be careful that they don't win the fourth. So it, there's no contest. I don't know any serious person that will tell you that, that um, the West is anywhere close uh, in terms of, of winning anything. Now, that doesn't mean it can't change or it won't change. Uh, Tesla has done a fantastic job of building a, a car that people like. You saw the rollout of the F-150, the electric F-150, the most popular selling truck in America. It's going to be huge. But fundamentally, we are a long ways behind. And I think what automobile makers, and I've you know, spoken with them on and off now for years, fail to understand is that some of these materials are not like buying aluminum where you just have your procurement guy call up and say, hey, I'll take X and Y, send it over. Uh, and instead, the time from discovery to production is a decade or more in some cases for a, you know, a nickel, copper, cobalt, lithium deposit. They, they didn't understand that. And so if you look at the capacity for the vehicles that's being built out in the West, it's insanely big, right? I mean, you know, almost every week, another a Lamborghini I saw within the last week said all their cars are going to be electric by 2030, right? So everyone has built the car, but no one's got the battery, you know, and, and that uh, is clearly 100% securely in the domain of China today. So much so that you had you know, Tesla do a big roundabout. If you look at the early kind of musings of, of Elon, he only talks about his NCA battery and how great it is. Well, he stepped back from that and they're talking about an LFP battery because it's much cheaper, uh, the materials are less scarce, and you really don't need a big battery if you're just you know, driving around the Bay Area, right? Like how far are you really going in a day? And so you can already see him walking that back. And where the rubber is going to meet the road here is when we do ramp up the kind of 18 to 36 month window, like where, where are these batteries going to come from if the Chinese control the material? And I, I can just give you some insight, you know, as chairman of Nickel 28, we're the largest producer of MHP in the world. MHP is probably the best material to go directly into a battery just because it's already, because of the solving it with acid very easy um and the payabilities we're getting are you know amazing right like i've probably never seen anything quite like it and you know that that's all going into china that's going into electric vehicles and and so that pressure is only going to mount and it's yeah. only going to get harder and um yeah it is what it is Okay, so switching gears slightly, I think we've sort of illustrated that aspect, which is quite interesting to hear from your perspective as someone, again, who's the head of a nickel company. So tell me about supply and feel, you know, how's the supply of nickel? And we can talk about other commodities as well, but since we're on the topic, 
and uh, of lithium and, and nickel and, and cobalt. I, I guess those are probably some of the main metals that we'd put in these batteries since we're on the topic. How are our supplies? Do you have any sort of insight into where things are? I mean, if you start with cobalt, I guess, you know, cobalt, there's, I would say, plenty of cobalt, except for it all sits in the, the DRC, right? I mean, cobalt is a byproduct of HPAL, nickel production globally. That's kind of a meaningless amount relative to the DRC. And so, you know, Glencore or whoever wants to operate there, China is able to operate in the Congo. It, it just becomes a question of, do you want your entire supply chain to be dependent on what's happening in the Congo, right? I mean, that's a pretty tough call as a business. So that's, that's the reality. But I would say if it could be managed, which I'm not even suggesting it, it could be managed, but if it could be managed, you would say that cobalt, there is cobalt in the Congo if people could mine there and, and kind of overcome some of the child labor issues and, and those issues. But it's scary if you're Ford and, or Tesla and, and your image is being built on clean energy and then a picture in the Wall Street Journal of, of, of a 12-year-old kid pops up. Like that's a, you know, it's sad in the first instance, but in the second instance, it's damaging to your brand. So I think that's that's the state of play for cobalt. You know, the, the plays in North America are by and large so small that while they may be profitable and a good investment, they really don't do anything to the global the global supply. And so it it really is gonna be beyond either Russia or DRC. Russia has potential on some of their deposits. Can I stop you just on the cobalt while we're there? How, how sure. critical is cobalt? Because it seems like the talk on cobalt is sometimes it sounds like it's more critical than other times as far as making batteries. It's, it almost comes in and out of fashion. Do I have that right? Or Yeah, well, what, what I want to say is people, don't, people have to understand that um, these battery chemistries and battery technologies are in transition. And, you know, they are constantly evolving and changing in the ratio and you know, and even as I said earlier, transitioning from a nickel manganese cobalt to an LFP battery, that's always in transition. But once again, long story short, when that supply ramps up, cobalt will be short. It'll be in short supply. And where people will go to produce more is they'll go to the Congo because that's where you're going to have to go. I mean, you can get a little bit out of here and there in Canada, but it's irrelevant numbers relative to what's going to be needed. And so that's going to that's going to come out of the, the Congo. I would tell you interestingly that a lot of the, the nickel deposits that need to be made, like a Dumont or a, a Turnigan, the ratio of nickel to cobalt is roughly ten to one, which is probably where the battery chemistries are going. So if some of these nickel mines were built and they kept the um, cobalt unit, that would be helpful. Just a little asterisk is important. Um, the process of taking nickel pig iron and nickel mat destroys the cobalt unit. So uh, you know, that's a, that's kind of an aside, but important to note there. So are you saying, in other words, that these projects like Dumont kind of have a perfect recipe if the policymakers wanted to actually develop this? Is that what you were saying? Oh, perfect recipe. I would well, say a, a good recipe. To, 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 yeah, today, is in, in terms of what the battery looks like today, roughly speaking, the ratio of nickel to cobalt is similar to the battery. So, I mean, in a way, if you think about offsetting it, it kind of offsets. But to sum up cobalt, we're going to have to go to the Congo. It's the only place to go to get the volume that's needed. And so that is a problem someone's going to have to work out uh, in the coming years. Yeah, moving on to lithium. Well, lithium is different. I mean, like, like I think that lithium has some real ESG problems coming up. I mean, can you imagine mm -hmm. going to a dry desert, a reservoir that can't be recharged, putting all this caustic salt, just destroying any life? I mean... This is pretty nasty stuff. Once again, for 
an element that's meant to be powering you know clean energy. So I think yeah. the big breakthrough for lithium and, and frankly the risk for the equities is someone is going to crack direct extraction and it will literally have the impact that nickel pig iron had on nickel a decade ago. The day that, and there are a bunch of people trying and, and billions of dollars have been spent, but someone will crack that. And the day that that is cracked, that, that market completely changes. The problem is, if you think about it, when you are evaporating water, your, your energy is free. It's energy from the sun, it's solar. Uh, when you're doing direct extraction, you basically have to take that same amount of energy and pay for it in order to, to expedite that evaporation process. So no one has done that yet. They've done it in small scale, but I think there's plenty of lithium on this earth. It's one of the most common elements. It's just getting that process down. And I have, I have conviction that will happen. It might take time and, and lithium might go higher first, but someone will figure that out. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned that. My girlfriend's from Bolivia. And yeah, when you talk about lithium, it's just uh, these, these nightmarish companies that come in and destroy the beautiful, you know, Salazars or whatever they call them. Uh, yeah, so I mean, at least that's the public perception, so which is interesting uh, that you say that. Um, oh, but that's okay. not public. I mean, like, well, you, you've got all these salts that are there and the wind blows them away. And, and um, it's not mm -hmm. great. It just isn't. Um, and so the public is right. Now, it's going to continue on, but someone will figure out direct extraction eventually. I'm confident. Uh, and as far as nickel, do you, how is the supply situation? We heard Mark Jarvis say 2027, 2028. Do you have a similar, where we're going to start running into real constraints? Do you have a similar view or otherwise? Well, I think, I think the wild card is obviously stainless steel. And so if governments globally decide that we got to spend our way out of whatever it is that we're in right now, and, and you have the Biden infrastructure plan, you have some infrastructure plan in the EU, and that drives stainless demand up, and then I think that this gets pulled forward, you know, even into the next 18 to 36 months. And I don't think, you know, the one good thing, of course, about nickel is that there are a lot of known deposits globally. Like there's no shortage of nickel deposits. It's just about the clearing price to produce it. And so, you know, you'll probably see a ramp up of, of production in Indonesia and Southeast Asia because that's easy. The regulations are probably different than in Canada and the bulk of that nickel will probably go into the Chinese machine. So that, that's the most likely outcomes. I don't think you're going to actually see shortages. I just think you'll see a higher price to support whatever the new nickel demand is. And, and by the way, it could be just like copper if, if that infrastructure really happens. And then you've got, you know, a bunch of people buying F-150s because remember a battery is sized for the weight of the, the car or truck. So if you start having, you know, big trucks electrified, well, that, that battery could be a multiple the size of whatever is in your basic sedan. And just a final point on this, would you consider nickel to be a green metal? We hear copper being a kind of a green metal. It sounds like if it's used in batteries that we'd consider nickel a green metal too, but I don't hear it that often. What do you think? Well, it's, it's absolutely critical to the batteries. I mean, you can't remove it yet, at least not for the long, the long range batteries. So I think there's no question that it's critical to electric vehicles as we currently envision them. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it is just because even though today 60, 65% goes into stainless, you know, you're talking about needing as much as 50% of the global nickel market and expansion to meet a fully electrified world and maybe more. So even, you know, it's interesting, even as the amount of nickel and cobalt decline in the batteries as the chemistry shift, 
you know, if you really have a fully adopted electric world, you're going to need a lot more of this stuff. And, and that's and why, sure. by the way, like these conversations have started about mining the ocean floor, nodule mining. Right. Uh, Frank, Ju- Frank Juster has that, that RTO he's doing right now. And you know, there's probably three or four of these companies out there in different um, kind of states of, of play. And, and that can only be, be a conversation to be had in, in a market that's, you know, higher prices. Yeah, that's a very interesting area. The Deep Green is one of the big uh, explorers out there. And yeah, we actually interviewed him on the podcast, the CEO whose name escapes me at the moment. But it sounds like it's pretty environmentally friendly, according to him. But yeah, then you run into the green people and they're not too excited about it. So question that's maybe a little naive, but but maybe you have insight on this. Do you know anything about the supply lines of, say, something like nickel and maybe lithium or cobalt? Is it is it something to be concerned about? Is there are they just normal infrastructure? I know nothing about the supply lines. Do you know anything? Well, about I mean, they, they, yeah, they. I would say, um, well, first of all, a lot of these mines are in Cuba and the Congo, and you know, a bunch of places like that. Um, and what I would say is, you have geopolitical risk, especially if these countries are unvaccinated and they're having all sorts of problems, but the larger kind of risk is supply chain associated with moving bulk commodities or just commodities in general. So if shipping is reaching decade highs, well, that knocks through to the underlying commodity. And then, you know, there's other things like if you're going to make MHP or you're going to you know, do nickel mat from nickel pig iron, you're going to need sulfur. Well, sulfur is going up. So, so I think, I think uh, mining suffers from the same supply chain issues as every other industry, you know, you can build get tires. Did your tires come from China? Is that factory operating? Uh, is there a new tariff? So, th- those sort of supply chain issues are almost identical to any any business that kind of relies on this global integrated supply chain that we've kind of been so fortunate to have in the, the recent decades. Just putting on your economist hat briefly, the the question of the moment on inflation. Do you think this is transitory or do you think this is kind of here to stay as someone who's say running a commodity company like yourself? Well, what's your view on that? Okay, let me answer that question with a question. If I told you next year there was going to be 20% more copper, 20% more coal, 20% more fill in the blank, would you tell me that the price would be higher or lower? If the, if the supply of any given commodity was just magically 20% bigger next year, what would you tell me? Would that would that be worth more or less that commodity? Be worth less, right? One would think, right? Because you know, if you if you if you pump up a bunch of copper, someone's got to buy it. There's not twenty percent more demand next year. So in the last kind of twelve to fourteen months, 23 percent of all dollars printed in the history of dollar of the dollar have been printed. So we've taken the U.S. money supply, and we've increased it by over twenty percent. Thus. I think devaluing and debasing the dollar. Look at look at the Canadian U.S. exchange at the moment, or even the the U.S. Um, G, you know Great British Pound exchange. So you see declining dollar. Um, I think it's highly inflationary. Um, I don't know you know how hard commodities are going to go, but I think certainly that um, certain parts of this have a demand story and then a story connected to the printing. And I don't see that subsiding kind of immediately. Now, other things like lumber is totally different. Lumber was a supply issue um, because the mills closed. I think that's already correcting the futures. have been a limit down three trading periods in a row. 
uh, OSB in the U.S. That's a glue issue out of China. So certain things, I think, return to a, a more normal uh, situation. But in particular, for these commodities, with uh, all the pressure and printing going on, and there's another four trillion slated in the U.S., it's hard to see that you're not going to subside. Fascinating. Okay, Anthony, thank you for joining us, everybody. Thanks, Anthony Malowski, Nickel Twenty Eight. So a very interesting segment at the Global Mining Symposium. It was nice to help out there. And thank you to Anthony Malowski for a a really interesting conversation. If you want to help out the podcast, just leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory or send it to your friends, especially if you know any college students out there. They tend to be some of our biggest listeners, and we thank them for that. I hope you're all having a really nice summer. We shall see you next week. Until then, take care. This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF.